Hello, everyone, and welcome to Howling Coyote. And I'm I'm happy to be speaking with Ron Unger today. And Ron and I have known each other for some years as as part of the of the network of people who work with those who have extraordinary experiences and don't necessarily want to be part of the mainstream psychiatric system. And by training, Ron is a social worker in LCSW, and he works and lives in Oregon. And I'm going to invite Ron to continue introducing himself, and then we'll we'll proceed into a dialogue. Sure, yeah, thanks um, for inviting me here. Um, you know, my interest in this field, you know, like a lot of people actually started with some of my personal experiences of kind of like some, um, as you put it, extraordinary experiences, which a lot of people saw me as somewhat psychotic. I, in fact, self-identified that way or, you know, like, hey, I'm, but, but I saw it as a good thing, like that, that was a, a, some turmoil that could be going somewhere positive because I had a traumatic childhood and this was allowing me to rethink things. Um, so even though it was kind of out there sometimes, you know, I eventually found other people who maybe also had had similar kind of out there experiences, but were could ally together. And we did some kind of like wild events together <laughs> back in San Francisco in the 70s. And then kind of like uh, after a while, some of my family members also had kind of wild experiences, but caught, caught up in the psychiatric system. That made me really think we really need to change the system. And then I joined Mind Freedom and lobbied for change. But we always kept saying there should be alternatives. And the professionals would say, but we don't know any. <laughs> and so then I decided to become a therapist and, um, and start practicing and then eventually teaching some of the alternatives, especially what's called uh, cognitive behavioral therapy for psychosis or CBT for psychosis. But I'm also broadly interested in a lot of approaches. And so that's not like a singular focus. Yeah. You know, you remind me a little bit of our friend Matt Ball in Adelaide, Australia, who also had lived experiences and, and uh, experienced some trauma at the hands of the psychiatric system and eventually got it together and became a nurse and then a nurse practitioner. And now he runs a, a clinic in Adelaide called the Humane Clinic mm -hmm. to help people with extraordinary, integrate their extraordinary experiences. So it, probably a lot of other people have done this as well. But uh, Yeah, yeah, I definitely think so. Now, one difference between myself and Matt is I never did actually get pulled into the psychiatric system. Um, it was, but I saw family members have that happen to them. So the trauma I experienced was growing up just, you know, abuse mm -hmm. and bullying and stuff like that. And, um, but it was pretty severe and dramatic in itself and definitely set me off. I, I needed something different. And that's why I, I sometimes use a expression like having a revolution in one's own mind and like revolutions, it can lead to something better, but it can also lead to chaos and disaster and distress. <laughs> so um, that's, that's one metaphor I use for these states of mind. But, yeah. It's a good metaphor. So I, I wanted, I wanted to explore um, 
more about what you mean by your version of CBT. And I'm familiar with Jakes and Rhodes, who wrote a book called Narrative CBT for Psychosis. And I, I enjoy that book a great deal. And um, I, I certainly work narratively with people with psychosis and definitely Buddhist-like, which I think is maybe CBT at its best is Buddhism. But I'd really like to hear your thoughts about the kind of CBT that, that you do and sort of how you got to that and, and things like that. Yeah, um, well, how I got to CBT really was, you know, I was trained in social work, but they didn't teach us anything to do how to help people with psychosis. But then I heard of some people in the UK doing some work that, that was helpful and wrote to them. And uh, Paul Chadwick wrote back and basically gave me his manual for how to do groups with hearing people hearing voices. And this was before I heard of the Hearing Voices Network. So I got started with that. Um, but yeah, there's, I guess there's quite a diversity in, in um, CBT for psychosis these days. But I think some of the real basics to it um, is um, collaborating with people to kind of like figure out what's going on and how to possibly get on with their lives. There is this idea in CBT of balanced mind, trying to get to a balanced mind, which does require dialogue. So it really works. Um, I mean, I've studied some of the dialogical approaches too. And often they really contrast it, like CBT is completely different. But in fact, at its roots, there's this interest in balance requires dialogue because to have, let's say, a balance between the part of you that is, is scared and thinks you shouldn't do something and the part of you that thinks you should do it, you, you need to have a dialogue between those two sides. I want to hear from the part that's scared. I want to hear from the part that thinks I should do it anyway. And then look at those together and a decision emerging out of that dialogue. And so a lot of people think of CBT as the expert coming in telling you how to, <laughs> how to figure everything out. But in fact, um, and especially in working with psychosis, CBT therapists would say it's really important to come from a place of uncertainty and a place of recognizing a lot of experiences kind of go beyond our capacity to really put them in a box. Um, like Doug Turkington, uh, he was a you know big leader in the CBT field. Um, I went to a few of his trainings and, and one of them he told kind of like a equivalent of a, a, a ghost story where a ghost seemed to follow him home from a conference. And, 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 and the way it happened was just that He'd been kind of like haunted by this picture that he'd seen in his hotel room, but he'd kind of left and didn't think much more of it. But then he got home and his, um, he was putting his kid to bed and then, you know, went back to his own room. And then he noticed the kid's light flickering on and off. And, hey, stop that. I'm not doing it, Dad. The lady is. And the kid comes into his room and describes the woman that he'd seen in the photo. That, um, and then later his wife saw the same image. And this few things kept happening for a week and then it kind of faded. And Doug would say, you know, like, well, people should talk more about experiences like that because 
yeah, we could come up with explanations for it. Like maybe it was kind of random and then kind of it was a suggestion once the kid described it that the wife saw it too and all that. Or you could say, well, maybe something at a different level was happening. So you come up with different explanations, but you don't, you know, the, the, the root thing you can say is, hey, weird stuff happens <laughs> and we try to figure it out. Um, so, so that's a key part of um, CBT is just recognizing that stuff happens. We could explain it different ways, um, but we do want to get on with our life. And, and that's the core of CBT is figuring out how can you help people get on with their life? Yeah, I think, I think that's common. You know, it's interesting how therapy really has so, whatever you call what you do, it's basically helping people get on with their lives. And, and, um, and I think it's probably unfortunate that we have so many different labels because um, it separates us rather than bringing us together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I think about um, the kind of mainstream notion of CBT that I encounter when I work in this system. And it's, it's nothing at all like what you're talking about. So I hear you that there's an incredible diversity within CBT. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because the mainstream folks would not permit extraordinary experiences. They would immediately label them as a distortion and try and get rational mind to prevail again. And, mm -hmm. and I suspect that rational mind is not all that useful all the time. Yeah, um, I don't. Well, you know, you know um, Isabel Clark. You just did a presentation with her, but I like her. She does a um, a little um, drawing where she borrows from Marsha Linehan, and she shows like um, two circles that are kind of intersecting. And one circle she calls personal reality, and the other because she calls shared reality. And the idea is like in shared reality, that's the common understandings we have. Personal reality, our mind works in all sorts of wacky ways and we might experience things way outside the normal and that we actually do best at the intersection point of those two circles where we accept that we do have our personal mind with its extraordinary subjective experience, but we don't just draw on that or we don't just get lost in that. We also are aware of shared reality and of how our personality reality might interface with that. And so those intersecting circles, I've always found a useful. Um, yeah, it's a useful concept because, you know, it sort of explains like if you ignore shared reality too much, you get institutionalized in some way. You get put in the hospital, put in jail, um, you get put somewhere because mm -hmm. it, it's, it's sort of criminal from the mainstream perspective to ignore shared reality. Like there's a shared reality police, I think, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, who are, who are making sure that, that there's nothing extraordinary going on outside. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and CBT, like, um, 
for psychosis, I mean, the, another thing they do is they're willing to look at the positive side of extraordinary experiences, but also in a way that balances them. Well, well what's the dangerous side of it? And what's the side that gets you into trouble and, um, and possibly how to manage that better? Um, I mean, certainly a lot of, you know, um, traditional societies that had that valued these kind of experiences. They also had ways of keeping people safe and protected while they, while they journeyed in other worlds. And yeah. so helping people, you know, okay, there's maybe something positive, but how can whatever, how can you access whatever is the positive without getting into what the negative is? Right. And I, I remember when I lived in Tucson, Arizona, talking to some Weichel people who had come up from Mexico. And I was curious about their, their whole peyote thing. And I said to them, well, when would you, when will you let like a gringo do peyote? And they said, well, they'd have to live with us for a year because they would have to learn all the stories so that they wouldn't go crazy. And then we'd have to take care of them. And we're not in the mood to do that. So, so it, it takes a year minimum. And, and I thought, wow, you know, like for these guys, it's, it's kind of practical because they don't want someone in their community acting crazy that they have to take care of. But, but it's also sort of spiritual in a sense that it takes time to build a framework to process extraordinary experiences. That you can't just jump into the abyss and expect to be on a psychic bungee cord. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yet the, there is this thing that young people have a tendency to just kind of wander into these states sometimes. <laughs> I know I'm sure you're familiar with the film Crazy Wise and just, you know, uh, talking about around the world that's kind of like the pattern but in some societies they could recognize what was going on and it's like oh you might have some talent but you also need some help and let's show you how to handle this <laughs> yeah yeah no and it's funny because i think because i work within indigenous communities mostly for most of my career um i've also had this opportunity to work with non-Indigenous people who sort of wander into the community in a psychotic way, having tried to do it themselves without the stories and just fallen off the deep end. And, and it's, it's as if you can't, I suspect you can't throw yourself into the spiritual path without any structure that that you might well a lot of people end up confused and, and the mainstream would say psychotic but yeah. we probably could be kinder and say confused or or disoriented in terms of dimensionality like where are you which dimension are you in <laughs> at this moment and, and most of the indigenous people find them really annoying. I just want them to go away. <laughs> so, 
Yeah, it seems like it would be overwhelming because it's maybe, you know, the the rest of the culture should be taken care of, you know, the, these people in a competent way. And that's, you know, I'd certainly like to see our mental health system become more competent. And, um, you know, which I think one, one of the key ideas in CBT for psychosis is to, um, you know, instead of to pathologize what's going on and say, oh, this means you have such and such illness with such and such symptoms. Instead, there's a lot of helping. Hey, maybe what's going on with you is is understandable. And it's just an extreme version of stuff that everybody experiences. And maybe once you can help you get a handle on it, it won't seem that big a deal. Um, I mean, that's a real basic thing that's done. Um, so, um, yeah. like a lot of, you know, um, I mean, everybody, I mean, one way of saying, putting it is you have to have a certain amount of paranoia just to get by in the modern world, because you can't trust everybody because there's a lot of <laughs> distrustful, just, just, um, you know, bad things going on out there. But if you go too far into that zone, um, you can get like you say, really disoriented, nothing feels safe. And then you just kind of spiral and spin. And, um, but if, you know, like um, there was a study done recently in the UK called the, the, about what they call the feeling safe program. And they, they worked with people that seem to have what in psychiatry gets called paranoid delusions. Only they didn't really work on the delusions themselves. They just worked on, they said, oh, there's, we think there's five areas we can possibly help you with. And one of the areas, you know, possibly you worry too much or possibly your sleep is bad or possibly something's caused your self-confidence to go down or possibly, um, you know, you don't know how to handle voices that you hear or possibly, you know, you've gotten in the habit of, um, you know, defending yourself, but that's kept you from going on with your life and finding out that you can manage things now. Which of those areas would you like to work on? <laughs> and and most people worked on two or three areas, but, you know, in something like 20 sessions, they got to where half the people, you know, didn't have much problem with their paranoid beliefs anymore. And another quarter got substantial help, you know. So that's an example of one of the more effective CBT programs um, yeah. and it, it makes me think of, of someone I'm working with right now in the indigenous community who um, would be probably labeled paranoid something by the mainstream system because she arrived at the conclusion that her downstairs neighbor was broadcasting thoughts into her mind and reading her thoughts and trying to control her behavior. And so she moved away to she moved away to where I live to try to get away from that and it didn't work. And so then she tried to get a restraining order in the court and you can imagine how well that went. And um and, you know, the, the difficult thing is that she doesn't think there's anything wrong with her. That it's, I mean, she's completely convinced 
of the reality of this situation. And the only thing that I was able to come up with doing was to do ceremony with her every week, to light a sacred fire, to sing, you know, with the idea that the songs are prayers and they promote safety and to um, pray with her with the sacred pipe and, you know, to give her a blessing with the eagle fan and to ask the spirits to protect her from this invasion. And the really interesting thing is that it's working. And um, I think there's probably at least five explanations for why it might be working, if not more. <laughs> but um, but it's, sort, it's sort of within her, well, our shared beliefs that spirits can protect people, you know, and, and um, I mean, we don't really share the belief that this woman is doing what she thinks the woman is doing because I don't know many people that powerful. But, but we share the belief in spirit protection and, and the idea that uh, these ceremonies work. So yeah. that's what we're doing. Yeah, because I mean, so much of paranoia is being caught up in a fear spiral. And if people can find a way to feel safer, with, in this case, with the confidence that the spirits are some protection, um, then that could allow her to kind of like regroup and, and get out of that spiral song. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So, so maybe um, can you tell some stories about some people with whom you worked, and of course, hiding all identifying data yeah. as we always do. You know, as you were talking about the safety thing, it just reminded me of somebody I'm working with now who was just adamant not wanting to consider that any of the things he thought was going on were not going on because so many people had tried to discredit him completely, right? And it really sounded like when I heard his story that there might've been a mixture of things actually going on to make him feel unsafe. And then as well as his mind exaggerating things wildly. But one thing that helped was just to get him to find moments of safety like, you know, like I remember talking when I was so stressed out and like, well, do you think you can get to where you might be safe for five minutes where you could convince yourself you're safe for five minutes? And, you know, he was able to do that. And then once he could do that, he could relax a little for five minutes and then he could maybe find five minutes more. And it sounds like really simple, but I can say that's the main intervention that I feel like I've, I've done so far. And yet for the last number of months, he's functioning much better and, you know, and is now doing things to get on with his life. And, you know, it's still, there's that, that threat and the, the sense of threat in the background. I don't think we're done or anything, but it just did a lot just to, you know, something that allowed him to get a, a sense of being able to come down to ground and, and be safe for just a bit. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and it makes me think about how, mainstream, I don't know, what do we call it? Psychological services. 
like like when you mentioned 20 seconds i 20 sessions i imagine some bean counters going nuts because that that's way too many <laughs> you know and and i mean and that's sort of my experience is that it took a long time to get there and it's going to take some time to get out of there and and we need some patience you know that that slow recovery is better than no recovery and i don't know how to convince the mainstream culture of that idea i don't know have you had any success with that um well oregon oregon system is probably different than some i mean here the you know, Medicaid or the Oregon Health Plan um, actually does allow people to, to be in ongoing therapy for potentially years, you know? So I know in a lot of states, they just, <laughs> that would not happen. No. <laughs> um, so, so, so that's one thing that I haven't directly, yeah, it is really unfortunate. I mean, you hear how like something like open dialogue where they come in with a team of people multiple times a week, maybe every day in the beginning and something like that. It sounds so expensive. And yet when they evaluate it compared to treatment as usual, hey, it's way cheaper because our people get better. <laughs> a lot of them do. And, you know, we don't spend as much in the long run. Um, now, one thing when you have a fragmented healthcare system, I think a lot of the insurance companies they, they wouldn't care. They'd say, well, maybe in the long run it'll pay off, but they might be on different insurance then. So we, we got to save money now. And that would be one reason to have a unified system that would have to think ahead. Hey, we don't want to be spending money on this person's mental health care five years from now. We want them to get what they need now so they get better and go on with their lives. Um, yeah, I read that, that most people change health insurance every 17 months. And so why bother to plan for five years from now when you're just gonna get rid of this person in 17 months mm -hmm. or they're gonna get sicker and go on to Medicaid. So why should we have to take care of them? We can just pass it, up, pass it on, give it to someone else. Yeah. yeah. So you, you asked me though about, you know, people working with, I mean, like an example of, somebody a little more complex, a woman who like, you know, um, every time she goes out, her voice is saying horrible things about her, but then she also has like really would get into really, would, would feel terrible, but then she'd get into really grandiose beliefs to make her feel better. But then people would see her as crazy because she was so into, you know, these grandiose beliefs. Um, you know, we've done a number of things over a period of time, you know, with the grandiose beliefs, I had to kind of like, you know, I mean, I didn't entirely discount them. Like sometimes I'd look for maybe where there was some spiritual truth in them, but, but at the same time, you know, be, I wonder if it's quite that way or it's a little different, <laughs> you know, but then it also helped her kind of like see the function of it, that she was trying to make herself feel better. So that she, she could be kind of like more onto it and, and also recognize how it how it played out when she would try to make these claims to her friends. And then her friends would be like, oh, that's too crazy. We don't want to hang out with you. <laughs> or her family would do the same sometimes. 
Um, but she's gotten much better at that and much more aware that that her tendency to do that and 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 doesn't do that much so much. She's gotten better at like one skill is just like when she goes out, she hears the voices, but the voices pretend to be the people around her. So she's had to work at, well, how can I tell if it's really the people around me? And so she's learned to ask herself questions like, how likely are people to be saying that? Or she visually observe them, like often she'd notice, oh, it sounds like it's coming from that clerk, but I don't actually look at that clerk. He's smiling and, or he's just going about his business. You know, it, it probably isn't really the clerk, it's the voices. And if she can realize it's the voices, then it's, you know, she's calmer. And now she's starting to get in touch with, well, maybe these voices are um, coming from a part of me that's scared and doesn't want me to go out. And so she can actually work at trying to be kind to that part of it herself to help it be less scared, um, which she's had a hard time doing. And there I brought in some of the methods of internal family systems approach, if you're familiar with that. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Which I'm trying to figure out how that gels with CBT. In fact, that's what I'll be talking about at the ISPS US conference in November. Um, but, but, you know, the, Basically, you know, she's got a part of her that's trying to scare her. And normally, like, she's either getting scared by it or she's pissed at it. But um, if I can help get those two reactions to step back and have, have her actually be more, like, curious and kind to that part. Hey, you know, why are you scared? Or why, why do you want me to be scared? Or, hey, what do you need to be okay? And then she can actually start healing with herself a little bit. Yeah. Where does, what, what dimension does she place the voices? Where do, where do, where are they coming from? You know, I think with her, I'd say there's three levels. It's like one is she would think sometimes she thinks they're physically real, right? That that's oh. what people are actually saying. Um, sometimes she would think it's just her mind. And the third is that she believes that a part of her split off that has these, that, you know, a lot of powers. Uh -huh. And, um, and so we're working with, um, you know, helping her reconcile with that part of her. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, it's so challenging when people are so committed to their version of, to their interpretation, you know, um, and I, you know, such as my client I described, or I have another woman I'm working with right now who um, is committed to the belief that the mafia is after her. And, and I can't find any evidence to support any idea that they would actually care about her, you know? And mm. so I, and, and I've talked to some of her previous caregivers who, you know, have, have concurred with that idea that, yeah, she's had some trauma but it's sort of random street trauma and, and not 
organized crime. And yet it's so, I mean, that's, an, that's a, a belief that will not be budged. And, and I'm, I'm struggling right now with, so what do we do then anyway? <laughs> like, yeah. like, if we can't budge that belief, like, yeah, I mean, you know, like, um, I think of a few different areas. Um, like, one is just try to figure out well, is, what can she do, even if she thinks the mafia is after her. You know, like, how how is it possible that sometimes they're not after her quite as much as she thinks, or you know, because somehow she survived to this point and. You know, so if she could start doing a little more, because sometimes if people start doing a little more, their belief starts not seeming so true or so important. Um, I'd be curious, like, why it is so important to her to believe that? And I think one reason is sometimes when people have a sense their whole life's in chaos, the idea that danger is just kind of like everywhere is just so scary and overwhelming that they would much prefer to have it all in one box. And so for her, the box became the mafia. I know where the danger is. It's the mafia, you know, as opposed to it's all these possible traumas all over the place, you know, that's, that is scarier. So she need help dealing with kind of the uncertainty of life, you know, um, that, and, but the more she can be helped to take care of herself and and have a life that's not traumatic and find a way to get on with it despite her fear of the mafia, she might then develop more of a sense of safety and more of a sense of, hey, maybe I can open up my mind a little. That would be a thought. Yeah, no, it's a good thought because um, she, though she grew up in Maine, she lived elsewhere and has only recently come back to escape the mafia, but has already discovered that they've found her and and are surveying her. And, um, you know, my question to her when I last spoke to her a couple of days ago was, well, they haven't killed you yet. So if they're surveying you, well, so what? What do you want to do? Like, what could you do? Yeah. That would, yeah. And one of the things in the Feeling Safe program, they would seldom go back and, or maybe never go back and try to convince people that things didn't happen in the past. But they would say, was it possible that things are safe enough now that you could start doing things? You know, so is it possible that? You know, maybe the mafia is losing interest enough that it would be okay to, to go out and do, I don't know, whatever she would want to do to get on with her life. And um, then that might be a way. Or, or one thing is like, how much is she worrying about the mafia all day? And if you could help her manage her worry better, well, maybe I'll just worry. Like a classic CBT thing is maybe let's just worry about it 15 minutes a day. And then at the end of 15 minutes, say, well, that's enough worry today. I'll worry about it again tomorrow. Now I'll get on with my life and go do things. You know, it's so interesting that you said that because my grandmother must have been a classic CBT practitioner because she had a rule that 
after breakfast, she would worry for an hour. And then she would pray. And after that, forget it. <laughs> it's very CBT. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and you, you know, what's so interesting is, I mean, she was Cherokee and um, had no education whatsoever. And yet she came up with this, I, I, I don't really know where it arose from, but this brilliant idea that, well, her idea was that you had to do the work of worrying, she called it. That was her phrase, that everyone had to do the work of worry. And then she had this idea that after you did the work of worrying, you prayed and you gave it over to creator. And then if you worried more, you were insulting creator. And that was a really bad thing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, see that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can remember like people bringing her troubles in the afternoon, and she would say, No, tell me tomorrow. <laughs> I've already done my work of worrying today. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I've already said my prayers. So, tomorrow. Yeah, one notion in, in CBT is if your mind thinks of worries later in the day, you can just maybe jot them down so you remember to worry about them the next day. That's a great idea. Yeah. It's funny, I, I didn't realize that, you know, I've, I've read um, more con of the conventional CBT literature, and I think I need to read more of the unconventional CBT literature to get more of a sense of the creativity that's possible. But I also think, and maybe you could speak to this, I think the mainstream uses CBT, the, the words, as a weapon against people who want to do interesting things. And, and probably it's unjustified. Um, it, it, what you mean using CBT as a weapon is unjustified or the thought? Using, that, using the phrase CBT. They would say, yeah. well, that's not CBT. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, whereas I tend to usually look at I usually try to look at how to weave things together with CBT. Because the one thing I think about CBT is nice is that it's it's kind of like simple and straightforward. And um, it's, it's sort of like an easy foundation to kind of like grasp. And then you can fit other stuff with it. Um, I mean, that's just how, how I like to think. But yeah, and the whole therapy wars, you know, like... Um, the idea that one particular kind of therapy is going to work where others don't, usually what you find is they all work to some extent. And maybe certain ones may really be better, more effective for certain problems. But um, I'm not a fan of that there's, you know, like, you know, trying to have trying to regiment everybody into a certain approach. That's just not my style. But I think you're right that there are people out there that would do that. Um, I think um, there was a thing in Sweden where they really tried to push everybody to do CBT instead of other forms of therapy for depression or whatever. But when they actually studied the effects of doing that, it was kind of a disaster. It was not helpful. <laughs> well, well, and that, I mean, my sense is that 
whatever you do, you have to engage the person first. Mm-hmm. And, and that isn't easy. That takes some skill. And, and the skills are, are probably human relating skills and not any particular form of psychotherapy. I mean, it seems to me that like when I get a new person, I have to build a rapport and I have to find out what they're willing to do. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it, it comes down to, to that, that um, no matter how many marvelous exercises I have that they could do or breathing techniques or guided imageries, if they won't do them, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You know. Yeah, that relationship thing. And I mean, one way they understand it in CBT is that that's like your foundation that you have to form a good working relationship. And that if you don't have that, it's like trying to build a house without a foundation. In fact, it's actually in one study they found that when people didn't have a good relationship, but they tried to continue with CBT anyway, the results were worse than doing no therapy at all. Wow. In other words, they were just antagonizing the person. <laughs> like, here, we're going to come in and fix you with all these special exercises. And <laughs> right, right. I can imagine. I can imagine I have a client like that right now who, who's very, I mean, well, she's no longer suicidal, so that's good. But, but she won't do anything. I've come up with an enormous number of things that she could do. And now it's become a joke between her and I that, that you know, whatever I come up with, she's not gonna do. <laughs> and, and um, but what was interesting, I just saw her today and she said, you know, you're one of two people in the world that I can tell the truth to. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, uh, yeah, I thought so. And I told her that, that I told her the same. And I said, well, it's good because, because we can, I can come up with all kinds of stuff for you to do. And you can tell me, take a hike, you're full of shit. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, and so, I mean, you could say, you could say that's a therapeutic advance, which I think it is, but, but what puzzles me and what challenges me is how in the world am I ever going to get her to do anything? Because, I mean, we've reached a certain plateau. She's not suicidal. Mm-hmm. You know, she has reasons to live. And she had a terrible suicide attempt before I, I met her and, and began working with her. You know, and when, I, when we began, she was, you know, suicidal to the max. And so I feel like, well, we've come a long way. But, but I've, I tried ACT, I tried CBT, I tried DBT, I tried all the initials. <laughs> I tried telling her stories. I tried, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whatever I could come up with. And, and she, it's like a game of badminton, you know, she adds yeah. it back. Well, what does she want for her life? I mean, what does she want to be doing? And is there a way to just kind of directly try to help her? go towards what she's wanting in her life or does she just not know what she wants? 
Well, no, she knows what she wants, but it's maybe impossible to have because she was taking care of a grandchild who was given to her by human services. In, and, and then uh, her daughter appeared and managed to get the grandchild away from her after 12 years of taking care of the grandchild. And now she has no contact with the grandchild. And what she wants is contact. And no one's going to give her that. Yeah. And, and so it, it, it's quite an impasse. Because um, if, she took, if she took the big picture, though, um, I mean, the big picture is this kid's already 12, you know, in a few more years is going to probably be able to reach out on their own to look for where grandma is. And if she could work on, hey, I want to be healthy and positioned well. So when this kid reengages with me, I'm in a good position to say, hey, welcome back into my life. And here's how I can help you out. So to do that, she'd have to, you know, be a good role model and take care of herself. And, but if she could see that, then that might get her more interested in taking care of herself. And But hey, this is temporary. It's painful. Yes. But it's likely temporary because, I mean, I, I know I worked with a client whose kids were taken away when they were much, much younger, but they did eventually find their way back to her. And it's pretty common these days. It is, isn't it? And yet I did try that. And her response was, fuck you. <laughs> I'm curious why. Why, why, why are you saying that? <laughs> yeah, I said, why? I did. I said, why are you saying that? And she said, because you can't prove to me that that's going to happen. I would say that's true. I, I can't prove that you're going to live through today. You might die. You know, you right. might have a heart attack. You might... Somebody might randomly shoot you. I can't prove anything. Yeah. yeah. I might die. You know? <laughs> I didn't do that. <laughs> well, that is one thing I do. I The uncertainty, I never try to promise anybody anything. Yeah. yeah, no, you're absolutely right. There's no promising anything. I mean, I was thinking about that. You know, I, I um, put in an abstract for a, a conference in Sweden about the phenomenology of aging and chronic illness and and i was looking at uncertainty has been with us since the dawn of time and and but but what's new is that medicine has given us a new anxiety about the uncertainty of life that now we have so many more things we can be uncertain about <laughs> Yeah. I mean, there's always been uncertainty, though. Like I was talking this morning with a client about how, who tends to get kind of frozen with uncertainty, trying to figure out stuff. But I was like, you know, you're trying to go through the woods and, you know, you might know, hey, rattlesnakes, bears, cougars, they could be lurking around, you know, around that next bend could be a bear, you know, hidden in the grass could be the snake. Um, and yeah, you can look for them, but you still might miss it, you know? And so like to be really safe, you'd have to just stay really still, right? And not move. And because, but then if you don't move, your life is stuck, you know, you can't do anything. So 
maybe what you have to do is decide, well, I'm safe enough. I'm going to keep an eye out for those snakes and bears and whatever, but I can't guarantee that I'll, I'll escape them, but I'll keep an eye out. I'll do my best and at least I'll be moving. Yeah, that's really, I mean, and it's, it's sort of been fun to, to, I get a sense that we're doing very similar things, even though we call it something different. Mm-hmm. Like I call it narrative therapy and you call it CBT, but it's sounding very similar. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, you know, I mean, and I've studied some narrative therapy, so I'm sure I've incorporated some of that. I've even read some of your stuff and learned from you. So those influences are all over the place and I can't even keep track of all the influences on how I think, but a lot of the stuff I'm talking about is consistent with mainstream CBT for psychosis. Yeah. Yeah. CBT for psychosis is more flexible and open-ended and uh, even like Aaron Beck, you know, him is one of the, he Uh died recently, but kind of like one of the fathers of CBT and, you know, everybody associates him with all the, the classic CBT methods and all that. But in his later days, he was working more trying to help people who had been like given diagnoses like schizophrenia and had a lot of negative symptoms and stuff. And so what he was all into, he still saw it as trying to change beliefs, but he, he didn't start by talking about beliefs. He thought the idea was you had to engage with people and found out, find out what lifted their spirits, what gave them a sense of, of meaning and joy and connection. And that's what it all was. And if you could help people find those things and nurture those things and bring them to life, that, you know, naturally some of these negative beliefs they would have, it would start to be easy to change them. So, he, but he was really focusing in on really spiritual stuff, you know, meaning, connection. <laughs> yeah, yeah, belonging, all of that, all of that stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, it it seems like we're, we sort of people start from these seemingly radically different schools, and over time we converge toward the same point. And it reminds me of a a film I watched in graduate school about I think it was Carl Rogers. Fritz Pearls and someone else, psychodynamic person, famous person, but, and, and um, so we heard them talk about what they do and then we watched them do what they do. And it turned out that what they did had no relation to what they said they did. <laughs> <laughs> And it made me think of Malcolm Gladwell, who had this great example of Ted Williams, who was a a fabulous hitter in baseball and came up with the whole Ted Williams program for how to hit that completely flopped because Ted Williams didn't actually know how he hit the ball. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a good one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and plus, no matter how much training you have, people are always throwing unique stuff at you. 
that, oh my gosh, I have no idea what to do with this. Or, oh, this is the opposite of what I've been trained, how this works, you know, like I was just doing something to make them feel safe. And now they feel way more scared than before. What did they do? What happened? Um, so we constantly have to be thinking on our feet um, because of this diversity of how people react and how um, how it works. But, but I think that is part of, you know, CBT for psychosis. There's the, the method is called developing a formulation, but it's probably easier understood as just a map of what's going on. But, you know, that we work on trying to figure out a map of what's going on, but um, it's always subject to change because we don't have a certain source of information. We just hear, well, I hear this and I hear that. It sounds like when this happens, then this gets worse. Is that right? And, and then you do this and then what happens? And so you try to map that out. And if something's kind of paradoxical, then you try to, you know, what, what could be happening with that? It seems like we thought this would make it less, but instead it's more, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You made me think of, of one of my recent failures, which is always useful to talk about, I think, which was, which was a woman who believed that these worms were burrowing under her skin and coming out at night and, and um, you know, um, many people had tried to convince her that that wasn't the case. And, you know, using rational argument, which as you know, worked very poorly. Um, and, and my approach was, was to say, okay, so there's worms, well, I wonder how we would treat worms. And so we looked into how do you treat worms and we came up with colloidal silver. You know, it's something that treats viruses and bacteria and worms and it's relatively safe if you don't take too much. And if you take too much, you'll just turn into someone who looks like a statue, but it won't kill you. (laughs) And and so I, I proposed that she try some colloidal silver and and I thought it was working because she came back the next meeting and started talking about how miserable she was in her marriage and how things were all falling apart in her house with her children and her husband. And I thought, okay, now we're getting somewhere. And, um, but, but then, and it turned out she hadn't even gotten the colloidal silver. This was just the thought of it or something. Mm-hmm. And, and then uh, her, her primary care doctor convinced her that I was an idiot. And that would never work. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and she, and she canceled all her, her next appointment. And, and the last I heard was on her way to the to the dermatology clinic at Harvard. So, but it's hard when it's hard when things fail. I think when we don't connect with people. I'm sure you've had the same experience. I mean, you missed the boat too. We all do. Yeah. 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 That's, you know, I mean, sometimes I never find out what's going on, but but. You know, sometimes even people like I remember one of my um, 
clients who went off um, she had a belief that all these people were in telepathic communication with her and tried working on that in various ways, including helping her approve her life so she wasn't so dependent on that. But then she kind of like sunk back into it. In fact, she got convinced that this one person, she should go move to another town to be with them because of the communication and that, oh, failure. But some months or a year later, I got a call and, oh, you know, I appreciate so much the work that we did. You know, I did go to that other town, but nothing happened. And then I came out of it and then I got my life together. <laughs> person was actually doing really well. And I've heard in years since continued to do well. And so, so sometimes, you know, stuff that, you know, but, but yeah, unfortunately we, you know, I don't think even our best therapies, we don't manage to, reach everybody you know open dialogue can't claim 100 percent success well actually even simple psychotherapy for simple anxiety nobody's come up with one that claims 100 percent success nobody's done trials and all of our people got better <laughs> it's never really that way if they're successful it's like hey most of our people got way better yay you know <laughs> but there's always like well but maybe these other people needed a different spin on it or they needed a different approach or something different. Yeah. And I wonder sometimes I think about the, the avalanche. So it can be the hundredth snowstorm that causes the avalanche, but every other snowstorm, the, the 99 before it contributed. And, mm. and when the hundredth, the hundredth snowstorm takes credit for the avalanche, it's ignoring the work of the 99 yeah. came before it. <laughs> Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah there's some research i read in therapy that they look for breakthrough moments in therapy and they found that usually the breakthrough was when they were going over something that they'd already been over three or four times before right, right. <laughs> so you know, like you say i was building towards that that avalanche being ready to go yeah yeah well in in the substance abuse literature it appears that you need to try to quit at least seven times before you succeed. So I suppose there's, there's that sense of working up to something, working up to change. But it mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily come in the flash of a, of mm -hmm. a hat. You know, it's, it takes time sometimes and effort. Yeah. Try, 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 and eventually it happens. I mean, just keeping the curiosity alive. I think some of the worst things about our current system is the way it kills curiosity. Like, you know, I mean, basically somebody falls into some of these extraordinary experiences and they go into the mental health system and the mental health system just says, well, it's just schizophrenia. There's no way to understand it. It's just something wrong with your brain. You rely on these pills for the rest of your life. Um, it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's really kind of like, kills curiosity and kills hope. Um, whereas if we can stay more curious, like, oh, isn't, you know, this, we, we don't quite know exactly, but maybe if we talk about it, we'll start get the hang of something what's going on here. You know, an open dialogue, that's the explicit part of it. The professionals have to be trained to come in and say, hey, we don't know what's going on. That's why we want to talk. Let's get people together to talk. Let's hear some different views you know, of what might be going on. Um, right, right. And, and I think 
the most important thing that organizations like ISPS could do is, is somehow to undermine the, the dominance of that other, that biochemical paradigm that we don't care what's going on. We're just gonna treat your bad brain with these chemicals and shut up and take them. And, and I suppose that's my biggest frustration is that that's the dominant paradigm. You know, and, and most of my colleagues, if they listen to this podcast, which they won't, but if they did, they would think we were nuts. They would think we were insane, you know, and yet, yet, uh, I'm sure you, you've had the same experience, the, the joy that comes from working with someone over time and seeing them reintegrate, you know, become functional, you know, get on with their lives. I mean, it's tremendous. Yeah. And, and it makes the whole thing worthwhile. And yet most of my colleagues don't see that because they just throw drugs at people. And, and at least in my experience, because when people demand drugs from me, I usually prescribe something and mostly it doesn't do anything. It's, it's this other slow medicine, psychotherapeutic work, lifestyle change, you know, that, that really makes the difference. And yet we live in a culture of, well, drugs are the answer. And I don't know, do you think we can change that? Well, I mean, it's certainly part of a, bigger problem. I think we live in a culture that is so focused on the short term and the short term fix. And so like, that's, we're addicted to fossil fuels, you know, because that's what produces energy quick. And, you know, and the fact that it's long-term problem, we have a hard time grasping. And so our whole system is so short. We talked earlier about how our short-term insurance view, like, well, let's, let's make it cheap in the short term. We won't think about the long-term. Um, it is, you know, this, this big daunting problem that I think a whole lot of us are going to have to put our heads together and work on. Um, I mean, in the short run, I'm at least trying to create islands of where people become aware that it is possible to work in this different way. And, and those, as those islands get stronger or whatever, that, that might be a force for change in the, the mental health system. Another thing I, I think is that people that have these extraordinary experiences are, I think, often people who have minds that tend to function more independently. Um, I mean, they're willing to go out into the wilderness of the mind, so to speak. And if we help people do that successfully, those people might become the leaders in cultural change. Yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah. You know, if, if, if the the lived experience community could actually influence the, the professional world in a meaningful way, it would be incredible. Yeah, yeah, well, people are working on it. Yes, we all are. <laughs> but I think the more we network together people that, and support people that are, you know, like people that are young in the field, the more they can hear early on, hey, there are these ways of working that it is possible. There is, you know, evidence that it means something. 
um, and you can learn how to do it more. And here's how to get support in doing it. I mean, those are all things that we can make happen. Yeah. And, and, and the difficulty is like, if you think about, so I might work with someone for two years or more. And, and how in the world would you turn that into a randomized control trial? which is usually six to eight weeks. Mm. And, and that's considered the gold standard. And that's what the young people are being told is that if it's not provable in a randomized control trial, then it, it's not true, it doesn't exist. And, and I think that's my, one of my great frustrations is this hegemony of research that discounts lived experience of, of people like you and I. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but there are people that are figuring out. I mean, I know there are, I think, I, I believe in the UK, they've got a, I, you know, what it is a randomized controlled trial going on for open dialogue. And I mentioned earlier, something like the Feeling Safe program, that was a randomized controlled trial. I mean, people either got put in a, you, you got either got randomized to get what they call befriending therapy, where, where the therapist just comes in and has a friendly conversation with you, or you got the feeling safe program. Mm. And, you know, the feeling, I mean, befriending therapy in itself helps people, yeah. <laughs> but the, something like the feeling safe program helped people a lot more. And, you know, and that they could do in, you know, something like 20 sessions. Um, now, some people, of course, are going to, benefit from longer than that. But once you show that something can be done in a randomized trial, then that helps create a new way of doing things. And then hopefully you can build some flexibility in that to reach other people and stuff. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. It, it is a long road sometimes. It, any other thoughts before we finish up for the day? <laughs> Well, um, I guess I just want to say, you know, I, I appreciate the chance to be on the, the show and I appreciate your, your work on this and, um, and also think it's you know, really interesting the, the cultural angle that you, 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 you bring to this work because there are you know, definitely traditional ways of healing that um, we could learn a lot from and that we barely have probably tapped the surface of. Yeah. And, and thank you so much for coming on because I, I, I love these conversations with other people who are working in different minds to, to extract the rare minerals. <laughs> so, so it's great, you know, and if people want to, if people want to read more about your work, where would you direct them? Um, they could, I have a, a, a website blog, recoveryfrompsychosis.org. Um, so they could do that. Or they could also look up my YouTube channel. Um, just if you just Google YouTube Ron Unger um, and maybe put in the word channel. <laughs> <It'll come laughs> So, yeah, that's great because uh, I've certainly read 
looked at looked at these resources and really enjoyed them. And um, I think it's really important what you're contributing to to this global movement of humanizing and and destigmatizing extraordinary experiences, which seems so important to me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. <laughs>